Welcome to another episode of Growing Forward, the podcast about cannabis in New Mexico. It's a collaboration between New Mexico PBS and New Mexico Political Report. I'm Megan Kamrick, a New Mexico PBS correspondent and news director at KUNM. And I'm Andy Lyman with New Mexico Political Report. Today, we've got some things to catch everybody up on, and we'll talk about a big story of Andy's that just came out today. As some listeners already know, twice a month, we have conversations with special guests on Facebook Live. A few weeks ago, Andy and I spoke with researchers in Colorado about a study they published that looks at the carbon footprint of cannabis. In case you missed that conversation, here's a clip. We've spent a fair amount of time on this podcast in the past discussing the potential impact of a legal cannabis market on our water supplies, but new research from our neighbors to the north also have raised concerns about another environmental threat, greenhouse gas emissions. Researchers at Colorado State University published their research earlier this year in Nature Sustainability. So joining us today are two of the members of that research team, Haley Summers, a PhD student in mechanical engineering and sustainability, as well as Jason Quinn, associate professor in mechanical engineering and director of the Sustainability Research Laboratory. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good to be here. Thank you. So first off, uh, how did the idea for this research project come about? How did this start? Um, it was sheer curiosity. <laughs> so Jason and I are, are in the mechanical engineering department, as you mentioned, and um, we generally study bioprocessing and, and looking at emissions from various products. And we have been in the agriculture space his- historically, but we really hadn't approached anything grown in an indoor situation. And as engineers, there's a natural uh, match there that that it takes a lot of mechanical equipment to grow something indoors. And so we really just raised the question, you know, has it been done before? Have, have people studied the carbon footprint? And we found a paper from Evan Mills in, t- in 2012 that, that had been done um, on a small scale pre-commercialization indoor grow up, but nothing had been done since uh, legalization. And so we said, let's tackle it. Let's look at commercial indoor grow and how do we calculate the carbon footprint? It was purely curiosity and it hadn't been done before. How, uh, what exactly were you studying and how do you go about conducting your research? Yeah, so our goal was to understand uh, the greenhouse gas emissions from a general or an average indoor grow facility at a commercial scale. Um, And the way we approach it, we use a technique called life cycle assessment. Uh, The idea is that you track all of the material and um, energy needed to grow cannabis or or to make your product. In this case, it was cannabis. And once you understand all your material inputs and all your energy inputs, you can overlay emissions data for those inputs and you just aggregate all that and you get a total carbon footprint. And so that's what we did. We built a model um, that tracks the materials needed and the energy needed to grow in an indoor commercial setting. And then we um, aggregated all the emissions to get a final carbon footprint. So you focus primarily on the carbon uh, footprint of indoor grows, which require more resources like electricity for lights, air filtration, sort of uh, creating an atmosphere, so to speak. Um, Are outdoor grows a better solution as a whole, at least in terms of uh, the carbon footprint? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, You know, the scope of our study was purely 
indoor. Originally, we really wanted to do compare it to greenhouse and outdoor, but the complexity of, of an indoor grow up kind of slowed us down. And, and we really just said, let's just focus on the indoor. Um, in the paper, we said, you know, we really, somebody needs to study greenhouse and outdoor with more certainty. But what we've done as a, as a preliminary factor is we said, let's look at our results for indoor growth and let's just subtract all of the, the, the emissions directly associated to indoor growth. And so when you do that, in general, you're stripping away about 80% of the greenhouse gas emissions just by going outdoor. But that doesn't mean that there aren't added emissions from, let's say, you know, if you till your fuel fill, field at the beginning, there's diesel emissions from the tractor. We did not account for that. We didn't account for disruption in the soil itself and carbon emissions from uh, the soil microbes. So just looking at taking your indoor footprint and moving outdoor and just getting rid of those mechanical systems and lights, you can save 80%. But we, we do recommend that future studies look at the impact from um, uh, added things we didn't consider and doing that simple uh, subtraction. Were you able to figure out what sort of challenges outdoor grows? You sort of mentioned, uh, you know, diesel from tractors, but were you able to see any challenges for outdoor grows um, and maybe why people would tend to go towards indoors? Yeah, I think the most obvious is just regional climate, right? So if you're in upstate New York or you're in northern Michigan or, or even Colorado, um, you can't get continual annual yields, right? Like you have to sort of create a more comfortable, happy growth environment for the plants. And so I think that's part of it, um, just you can get multiple harvests per year. And I think the other part of it is a control and consistency. So if you're wanting to deliver, you know, the exact THC for a specific strain, I think to get that repetitively, it's best that you control all that environment. And so there's a time and place, I think, for indoor growth. Um, the one thing we've discussed a lot in our research team is for those times that you don't need to control things so tightly. So let's say you're just growing for high THC and you just want to extract that and concentrate that for like an edible you know, is that a situation where we can grow just one massive outdoor harvest once a year and then extract that and just have a bunch of THC ready for, for um, you know, other concentrated consumables? I think that that could be a step in the right direction when, um, you know, when the, there's the right time and place for that. You also developed a map to estimate natural gas electricity usage estimates for carbon dioxide emissions. How does that outlook shape up here in New Mexico? Should we be worried? Um, yeah, so so there's, yeah, there's layers. Our, our total carbon estimate has layers. Like you mentioned, we've got an electricity layer um, and every grow facility is gonna have some level of electricity. And then um, natural gas is typically in like a heating system for your HVAC. Um, uh, if I remember right in New Mexico, I don't have the maps in front of me, but New Mexico overall, let's start with greenhouse gases. I think the average for the state is about 4,000 kilograms of CO2 equivalent. That's per kilogram of flour. I'll just, we can talk about what that means uh, later and compare it to some other consumables. But in the grand scheme of the US, um, our range was about 2,800 to 5,200. So New Mexico is, is a little bit on the upper end there. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the, um, a little bit with the lights, the grid mix, uh, for emissions in New Mexico is, um, not too, too bad. Um, but I think really what it comes down to is, um, the HVAC 
and in particular, um, the cooling systems. And so your electricity usage is higher in that region because you need a lot of extra cooling during those really, really hot times. Um, because although cannabis likes to be grown at, at high temperatures, it's not like 95 to 100 like you see in New Mexico. So you do need a lot of um, cooling and we generally do that through electric means. So um, that, would, that would be the one hotspot that I can think of off the top of my head. You don't need a lot of dehumidification in the region, right? Because it's dry. Or should we compare it to other consumables? <laughs> yeah, we can do that so that the number makes more sense, right? Sure. So, um, so what we did was, um, let me pull up here just so I have a couple numbers off the top of my head. But yeah, we compared to um, other recreational consumables that would be, you know, like uh, in the same vein. I think we would, if we compared to beef or cheese, you know, we're not really hitting target to target, right? You don't consume cannabis for the same reasons you consume beef. So we chose to compare to things like beer, wine, cigarettes. Um, and we've done this after the study came out and we are looking at, let me see if I have the, um, the average. So yeah, and we did it on a per serving, which is also sort of a, an ambiguous variable, right? Like a per serving is, is arbitrary with users. And it varies a lot. And so what we did is we said one serving of cannabis is the amount of THC uh, delivered to the consumer that matches the edible amount we have as a serving here. So in Colorado, that's 10 milligrams of THC delivered to the consumer. So for the amount of flour that's needed to get you that amount of THC, cannabis on average around the US, your emissions for that amount of THC is worse than one beer, a glass of wine, a shot, a cigarette. It's worse than all of them. Um, there are parts of the US that score better than others, but no matter where you're growing indoors, one serving of 10, 10 milligrams THC flour um, will be higher in your emissions than your other recreational consumables. Uh, Jason, how hard was this project considering the sort of uh, varying levels of legality um, of, of cannabis across the country. Yeah, I mean, what we did there is we didn't even consider legality as a input to this model, right? What we did was we just modeled the entire United States. And I think that the goal here was for states who have not legalized yet is to potentially consider the environmental impact as they start to legalize and maybe put limitations on the energy use per square foot, for example, of a facility um, to, you know, again, start to factor in some of these environmental impacts into um, policies that are being deployed as a part of the legalization. And so, um, you know, to directly answer the question, we didn't really care whether it was legal or not. We just said, here's the entire United States, right? Um, and then, you know, what was interesting with some of the discussion is that when Colorado first legalized, you know, there was a co-location requirement, right? And so that really pushed towards indoor cultivation systems because people are gonna consume in downtown Denver, right? The same way that they're gonna consume in downtown Albuquerque. And so with that co-location requirement, you have to do an indoor grow facility because that's what, what is available because your retail space has to be co-located with your cultivation systems, right? And so um, that was an interesting point of like, that was probably the worst thing you could do in terms of environmental impact was make that policy, right? And so, you know, again, we were kind of saying, hey, let's think about some of these things as other states choose to legalize. Why is the information you two have uncovered important, especially in our state as we're just 
now moving into legalization, full legalization. Yeah, I mean, I think we are in a bit of a climate crisis, right? And so um, bringing on whole industries that are rapidly growing the way that, that the marijuana industry is growing, um, we need to intrinsically be thinking about environmental factors as we grow and, and bring online uh, a whole new industry. And we haven't done that here. And that's led to pretty substantial carbon footprints. Um, and as the industry grows, unless we start building it into policy, best management practice guides, um, we were going to worsen the climate situation and just make it harder for ourselves down the line. Last week, Megan and I spoke to three people who are navigating the sometimes complicated road to getting a cannabis business license. What's interesting about this conversation is even though each of the businesses these three represent are very different in a lot of ways, they all had similar experiences with both state and local regulations. Just to quickly introduce everybody, Matt Munoz is one of three partners with Carver Family Farm, a cannabis micro business hopeful. Uh, we've been following Carver Family Farm through the licensing process, which you can hear more about in a couple of previous episodes. Erica Rowland has been involved in the medical cannabis industry for a while now, working both as a consultant and with a medical cannabis company in the past. Uh, now she's working towards setting up a cannabis country club, which would include a cannabis consumption area. And joining us for the first time is Alyssa Pearson, who is, uh, is planning to move back to her home state of New Mexico to start what is now known as a vertically integrated cannabis establishment, or VICE for short, in the southern part of the state. So thank you all three uh, for joining us today. We'll get to um, some general questions here uh, in a moment, but first, uh, Matt, like I mentioned, uh, we've been following your path towards licensure uh, since the summer. Can you give us an update on how things are going in terms of getting licensed for Carver Family Farm? Yeah, so we received a letter from the Cannabis Control Division that we have our provisional license. So, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Um, they rejected our application. Two things, mainly that they rejected it on. My driver's license when we submitted this on August 28th was valid, but by the time they got around to reviewing it, it had expired on October 10th or 11th. So I have to resubmit my driver, my new driver's license. And then also um, they rejected the zoning letter that we received from the city of Albuquerque um, for our zoning approval as they're calling it. And so, we're currently working with the city of Albuquerque, trying to get a letter from them that specifically states that cannabis is allowed in our zoning area. Um, our building's in the non-residential light manufacturing zone. So any cannabis activity is allowed in that zone. Um, the letter the city gave us just basically said we're in that zone. And then they provided a copy of the integrated development ordinance, the IDO that the city updates every single year that actually shows what's allowed in the light manufacturing areas and cannabis, all cannabis activity was part of that. Um, but the letter apparently from the cannabis control division needs to specifically state that 
cannabis activities are allowed in this and the in writing in the letter. So Thanks that's where we are. We're waiting for the city. We, we can circle back here in just a, a minute. I think uh, we've got lots of questions for all of you. And I think there's going to be some, some common threads here. Um, but just to, to move on to uh, Alyssa, just to give a little introduction. Uh, like I said, you're moving back to New Mexico to start a company called Dr. Green Organics. Um, and you're trying to get approval for a business in Southern New Mexico. And your business is, an, I think, in an interesting situation in that you're still waiting for local regulations, which I think probably is what's happening in a lot of small towns across the state. Can you talk a little bit uh, um, about, you know, we've heard uh, previously from Matt and Erica about the regulations that they're sort of working with. Can you tell us what it's like trying to get a license in a smaller town that hasn't even made those decisions yet? <laughs> yeah, so um, in the case of the small town that we're working in, um, you know, the biggest problem is they have no community development organizer, which if you're trying to get licensed in Albuquerque, I'm sure you've been working very closely because um, at least in Las Cruces, which is the nearby big town, uh, they have somebody dedicated to helping interface with cannabis businesses. So we're talking to, you know, whoever gets passed around for the day. So that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it is they didn't want to start uh, writing the or those zoning regulations until the state laws were finalized which means that they started even thinking about it in late August. So by the time the applications were open a couple of days later, um, they hadn't even had a meeting to agree to write <laughs> the regulation. So um, we're kind of in this catch 22 where, you know, we can't get approval from the state. And then also because of this, um, you know, the town that we're working in doesn't want to give us approval to start growing until we have a provisional license. And so we're going to be <laughs> caught in this really fun kind of limbo until uh, the wheels of New Mexico small government finish turning. <laughs> so a lot of the, like I said, a lot of common threads and, and we'll yeah. just, uh, at last introduction here, uh, Erica Roland uh, starting her company Farm Flourish. Uh, the last time we spoke with you, Erica, uh, which we the episode focused primarily on Bernalillo County's proposal for consumption areas, and it looks like the county commission may put that proposal on the next agenda, but it won't be actually voted on until December. Um, what sort of conversations have you had about outdoor consumption areas in Bernalillo County with maybe elected officials? Any like what sort of work have you been putting in while you're waiting for that next meeting? Yeah, so my, my biggest concern right now is that the indoor-outdoor language has been completely misconstrued. Um, in law, municipalities are allowed or um, to provide or to per permit um, indoor and outdoor consumption, uh, vaporize or, or, or smoke, and they are specifically pushing on this indoor-only specification. Santa Fe County adopted this um, a month back or so, I spoke at that meeting and said, please, you know, let's look at outdoor in New Mexico and camping and, you know, Airbnb and lifestyle and, and hiking and wellness and not, you know, mandate everyone smoking in fishbowls. And um, nobody's really listening. They're just saying, you know, it's the snowball effect of it, just getting more and more momentum. And indoor consumption only is just the wrong language. I, I, you know, I'm having a really hard time with them even putting that language in and it, I will see tomorrow if they've even, you know, even addressed it. Um, they say it's going to be a really hard topic because they're concerned about Knob Hill and bar areas. And I said, well, put a size limitation on it. I have five acres. I mean, I don't know why we would mandate everyone smoking in teepees per se with, you know, HVAC systems. So separate, separate ventilation. Um, so it just really seems 
seemed strange that, um, you know, the wrong language and the power that it can gain um, and how it can get, get misconstrued. So hoping they can listen. I'm just curious, Matt. So I, I guess maybe you can't answer this. I'm just curious why you've gotten zoning approval from the city, but the state doesn't accept that because usually zoning is the purview of municipalities. So I'm not, uh, it's a little odd that the state's not accepting that. So they're not accepting it for the sole reason. And it took me several phone calls and emails to finally get a response. And like I said, the sole reason they're not accepting it is because the letter doesn't specifically say that cannabis is allowed, even though the IDO that we provided them with from the city shows that our zone, it's allowed. And so they want it specifically in writing that we have approval from the city to have cannabis and the letter has to specifically state cannabis. Um, and also Alyssa, I think Alyssa hinted on something because Cannabis Control Division pointed this out that the city of Las Cruces has, you know, a great letter according to them. Um, and so um, I'm surprised to hear the city of Las Cruces has a liaison that's working with the cannabis community. Um, I think that's something that would be great for the city of Albuquerque to, to bring on board because these issues are just going to keep coming. You know, there's too many small governments and the state government building the airplane at the same time. And, you know, at, at some point it's just delay after delay after delay. We're going on two and a half weeks now since we resubmitted to the city asking them for a new zoning letter. And so um, every day is just, you know, it's costing us money. I mean, we're ready to start growing. Wow. Okay. And um, Alyssa, so it's a similar dynamic for you, but it sounds like the city's saying we need this, the state saying well, we need this from the city, the city saying we need this from the state. So how do you go about resolving that? Uh, a lot of crying. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just, I'm on the phone, I'm writing emails. Um, you know, I think for me, one of the frustrating things, so when we initially applied to become incorporated in New Mexico, which was its own fun <laughs> um, kind of process, um, at least when you call them up and are like, hey, where are we in the queue? They'll tell you, okay, here's where you are in the queue. We can anticipate within a week or so when your license is gonna be looked at. When you call the RLD, they just say, <laughs> well, we'll get to it when we get to it. Though they won't tell you where you are in the queue. They won't give you an estimated time frame. So, um, you know, I'm just trying to be communicative while also, you know, balancing not wanting to uh, be so pushy that maybe that works against me. And it feels like a really uh, delicate balance. I'm sure Erica is dealing with kind of a same yeah, thing. Everyone nodding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where so it's like, I mean, super vulnerable by say, speaking your truth, trying to be transparent, trying to be open, trying to be in compliance and therefore getting either put in a corner, don't want to talk about it. We don't want to, I mean, for example, I just got corrections back on my greenhouse that I'm <laughs> rehabbing a, you know, a, a three-car garage into a greenhouse because I couldn't say it was a cannabis grow house. And um, one of the corrections <coughs> it says, are you going to do manufacturing and extract in there? And where are you going to do it? And I'm like, I beg your pardon. Like, I thought we weren't talking about this. So, you know, and it's back and forth with the consumption thing too. You can have a private club and consume, but RLD says no consumption on any production site without being licensed as consumption. So, you know, it's very, they're, they're, they're telling 
you two go against the other one. And it's very irritating. I, it's counterproductive, it would appear. Erica, yeah. you're sort of bringing up a topic that I know that we talked to uh, Matt about um, in a previous interview. And I think, you, Erica, you and I talked about it before we uh, went live today. But um, there's this sort of recurring thing in the past during the, the medical years early on a lot of people started sort of getting creative with their description of what their business was to sort of fly under the radar. Um, and, and I guess with credit uh, card processing too. Yeah. You know, everything. So it, yeah. it seems to me that, that there's a, a, an easy way. I think Erica, you and I talked about that they're issuing ag licenses so that in theory, you could say, yes, I'm get, doing just an agriculture business and you could avoid all of this. Right. Um, I guess. And it's hemp until it's testing hot. So technically you're until you're in flower past couple weeks, you're hemp. So, you know, we, yeah. we, we kind of talked to Matt about this in the episode of why they're not doing it, but Erica, why wouldn't, is there, is there something keeping you? Obviously we're talking about it uh, on Facebook live. <laughs> so other than outing yourself, uh, is there a reason why you didn't go down that path to kind of like maybe steer clear of being specific? So municipalities giving me a hassle. I got the green tag 10 months later today for me to cover the trenches for the floor drains in my garage. So I've had a very like talk about crying. Um, I've had a very like, you know, emotional roller coaster of this, you know, order the seeds or don't even have floors because I can't even get across the ground because my plumbing's all exposed because they won't pass my building. And now they're, you know, they made me switch to commercial and, you know, they just, every day is a different request. And so, yeah, I would love to do any plants. I'd love to sell any dang agricultural anything besides chicken eggs, which is the only thing I have going for me right now. They have restricted, unduly restricted my farming so much in the last year, specifically because I mentioned cannabis or hydroponic lettuces, as a matter of fact. So the moment you speak anything into it, and that's why I got so offended that they're asking where I'm extracting in my grow room. I thought this wasn't even a grow room, guys. Like what, what is going on here? It's just, it's, it's so frustrating that there's no codes they're sourcing. It's the runaround. And then they blame that they got it shoved down their throat. So we, whatever, the governor is pro this. The governor is very much defensive about everyone saying that, um, you know, it's unfortunate that everyone sees it as that it's instead of an opportunity, it seems like a disadvantage that we're all having to hustle and, and figure out, no, let's open the conversation and figure it out. Well, and so this kind of, if you don't mind me kind of jumping in here, I think my, you know, my frustration kind of to what you're talking about, it's like, we're all, I mean, I'm not local right now, but God, every time I go home, I, (laughs) it's like, it's such a sigh of relief. So I cannot wait, but um, you know, we're all people who are from New Mexico. We want to be economic developers in New Mexico with limited, limited capital. You know, it's really hard to fundraise. We can't get business loans. Um, And we're up against some of these really big corporations who were able to buy land in unzoned um, or, you know, incorporated municipalities. Um, They were able to get legacy licenses a lot of times. And it's just like, it's, it's really, really frustrating to be, to feel like all of the advantages are for the big corporations and not for the small producers who are, who are putting in a lot of the legwork here. One common concern among those three is timing. 
They all said they were worried that would-be producers will not have enough time to get their products on shelves by April 1st, when recreational use sales are set to begin. And that plays into your latest story, Andy. You wrote about a new cannabis company that seemed to really get on the fast track for licensure. Yeah, it turns out that Generation Health, which is that new company, got a medical cannabis production license right at the end of June which also happened to be right before the state's Department of Health handed much of cannabis regulation over to the New Mexico Regulation and Licensing Department. Some listeners may remember a Santa Fe, New Mexican article a while back in September about this. Essentially what happened is the Department of Health issued one production or cultivation license to Generation Health. The CEO of that company is Vance Duggar, who also owns and operates a towing company in New Mexico and has apparently spent some time working as a consultant in the Colorado cannabis industry. So about five days before DOH was statutorily required to hand the keys over to RLD, DOH sort of quietly opened up the licensing process for production licenses for the first time in about six years, and Duggar and Generation Health received the only new license issued. Of course, he was the only one who applied, possibly because no one knew the application process was open. So essentially, after years of not offering more production licenses for medical cannabis, The Department of Health suddenly opened up applications for one more license, but with no fanfare, no widespread messaging, and Duggar applied and got it. Your story sort of gets at this issue of the advantage that Duggar might see from getting a license. Can you catch everyone up on what happened? Okay, so for years, DOH has been really cautious about issuing any more production licenses, much to the frustration of a lot of people who have been seeking a license for years. As a matter of fact, Duggar was one of those many people who didn't make the cut the last time DOH issued licenses. And prior to 2015, there were about two dozen production licenses. And then after a call for applications that year and narrowing the applicants down, DOH issued 12 more licenses, bringing the total to 35. So over the years, DOH revoked a couple of those licenses, but never issued more until this year. And even last summer, when we spoke to the medical cannabis program director, Dr. Dominic Zerlow, he seemed to imply that they weren't planning on issuing any more licenses. So what we're really doing, Andy, is we evaluate on a regular basis what that adequate supply is. And if we see that there's going to be a need based on either um, just increase in usage, um, increase in the number of patients, or if, for example, there was a decrease in the quality or the production of the actual medication, then we would definitely look at additional licensures. And that's part of why we're on a, on a regular basis are looking at how much supply is there and also surveying patients to see is the supply of a quality that is helping them and is worthwhile for them to be utilizing. Because if we don't have a product that has a high quality, that it's, so it's not helping individuals, then we're having more product isn't going to help change that aspect of it. And the whole goal behind this is to be able to help individuals and help patients with their various health conditions. But when I talked to Zerlo just a couple of months ago, he said DOH decided to open the process up again in June, but didn't get formal approval from the Office of the Secretary until around June 20th. Uh, Well, I mean, essentially, as I've stated before, that, you know, the department had wanted to open additional licenses or award additional licenses, basically to help to increase quality, potentially lower price, and increase diversity. So we had been requesting that for quite some time. I couldn't tell you exactly when we started, but it was prior 
uh, you know, we had started that process prior to even the legislative session. And when we did get the approval to do so through the office of the secretary in June, then we went ahead and posted the application and instructions on the website and uh, opened that on up. Now, as you know, unfortunately, there wasn't very much time at that point due to the implementation of the CRA, um, but as a program, we determined, and as an agency, we determined that it was in the best interest of the patients to continue to move forward and see if we could award additional licenses. So on June 23rd, the department posted an application for a production license and basically took the approach that the website is so frequented that anyone interested would see that process was open. Then a couple days later, Duggar sees the application template and applies for a license. By June 27th, which was a Sunday and two days before RLD took things over, Zerlo and DOH's lawyer went and inspected Duggar's facility. And I'm gathering that this process is very different from what happened in the past when DOH opened up the licensing process, that there was more notification then. What have people trying to get into the business now said about Duggar getting this license? Uh, I think that's mostly uh, confusion, a little frustration. And like you mentioned, it was a very different process. They made sure to, I think there might have been two press releases. And I will just take a moment to, uh, you know, a disclaimer here that it was under a different administration. And that's the other thing that DOH has sort of said is that, you know, that was a different administration, a different process, but it was completely different, two different processes. And on the inspection on a Sunday by Dominic Zerlo and the Department of Health's lawyer, is that normal for those two to do inspections? And do they normally do them on a Sunday? Well, that depends on who you ask. Uh, Zerlo <laughs> said it was not out of the ordinary for him and the department's lawyer to do an inspection because DOH employees were transitioning to a new department, which is RLD, and that they needed to get Generation Health license before June 29th. Uh, he also told me that the decision to issue more licenses was based on the fact that we were headed for recreational use in New Mexico and that DOH saw a need for more production. So. The plan, according to Zerlo, was to issue licenses to anyone who had all their paperwork in order, but again, Duggar was the only one who applied. So what kind of advantage might Duggar see? I mean, isn't the licensing process now completely open for everyone? It is, and over the summer when this whole thing started to come out, it sort of seemed like whatever advantage Duggar and Generation Health might have had was arguably negligible, for exactly the reason you just mentioned. But by September, when RLD started accepting applications, Generation Health had a couple of months on other new producers. And now that these applicants are sort of running out of time to get products on shelves, that advantage seems a little bit more significant. Um, and just for some context, depending on who you ask, cannabis takes anywhere from 10 to 16 weeks to grow. But there are also other things that need to happen before it can be packaged and sold. So the best case that I've heard is that if plants go in the ground on January 1st next year, they could maybe have products on the shelves by April 1st. The sort of standard operating procedure for most growers is a particular drying and curing time. And if somebody wants to make edibles or extracts, that's a whole nother waiting period. Plus, somewhere in there, you have to make room for testing. And the would-be entrepreneurs we've been talking to have said they're struggling with bureaucratic challenges between the state and municipalities. They're getting worried they won't be able to start operations in time to have product to sell by April 1st, right? So what does Vance Duggar say about all this? 
He said he basically was at the right place at the right time. So like I mentioned a, a moment ago, he tried to get a license in 2015. Then in 2020, he got a manufacturing license. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, manufacturing licenses alone don't allow for cultivation. Uh, and that's been sort of a point of contention for many manufacturers. So Duggar said that after he got his manufacturing license in 2020, he started asking DOH about how to get a production license and was eventually told to just keep checking the department's website for an opportunity to apply. And making things more interesting, the employee he said he spoke to about all of this is now one of the four employees suing RLD. And why are they suing? The lawsuit started out as uh, a lawsuit over their work assignments. They were moved from DOH to RLD. Uh, under DOH, they were working in Albuquerque in an office in Albuquerque, um, and they argue that they uh, were sort of um, illegally moved to Santa Fe to, to a new work location. And now it's sort of they're trying to amend the lawsuit uh, to include a Whistleblower Protection Act claim. Hmm. So what are others in the industry saying about all this? I think a lot of the legacy producers, or that is the producers that have been in operation for a while, are more confused than anything else. But there are a few frustrated legacy producers out there. Um, more than that, though, I think these applicants who are waiting for approval might be more frustrated since they're obviously eager to get things moving. Um, during our chat with these three people trying to get their feet in the door, one of them made reference to Generation Health that some people may have missed. I don't think anybody's going to be ready unless you're somebody who purchased a legacy license or got one on June 28th, you know, 2021. <laughs> well, Andy, this sure is an interesting story. It's a complicated one, too. If listeners are interested, that story is out today and you can find it at nmpoliticalreport.com. So, Andy, our state has an unfortunate history of some insider deals in state government over the decades. Um we don't seem to know a lot about this, but something doesn't seem quite right in how this all came down. Do we know why he got this license at like the 11th hour? It is the the sort of biggest mystery for folks who are trying to answer the question that you just asked. Essentially, does Vance Duggar have any sort of connections that would help him get ahead? And I don't think anybody's been able to find any of that. Um, he said himself, and I've verified through records, he's, he doesn't donate to, to any um, political campaigns. I think the last one I could find that he donated to was actually a Republican National Committee. Um, so I, I think that that is something that, uh, while it doesn't sit well with people and people are asking a lot of questions, there's nothing that points to wrongdoing uh, by the governor's office or DOH or Vance Duggar. Um, it just doesn't sit well with anyone. Yeah, I mean, especially producers who... If they had a license like that, they could be growing right now and getting product ready. Yeah, I think that's the, the biggest thing there is that, uh, like I had mentioned, you know, in September when this started, st sort of came out, um, people were already putting their applications in. And I think it was just um, assumed that that process would be a lot faster than it is right now. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, uh, I have no idea how far his production is going, but in theory, he could have been putting plants in the ground over the summer and probably be ready to harvest by the end of the year um, and maybe even start a new harvest by the end of the year. I'm not sure. And we should also point out for people maybe didn't hear some of those episodes, it's because people are sitting on a lot of infrastructure they've invested in to get into this business. 
and they're just sitting there because they can't get their licenses approved for whatever reason, like between municipalities and the state. So it's very frustrating for them. And I, I will say when I talked to Vance Duggar uh, over, I think in September, this wasn't in the story that I wrote, but he did mention to me that uh, he was the only producer that had to sort of go through this new um, process and had to have all of his stuff built out um, just to be specific though, or, or to sort of um, specify on that, he was the first of the new producers. So mm -hmm. the, or the first of the old producers, he was the first of the legacy producers to have to go through um, the sort of process now. Uh, but I, I will point out that um, he was able to get licensed by local authorities when nobody else has been able to do that. Right. Well, this has been another episode of Growing Forward, the collaborative podcast about cannabis in New Mexico. Our music is by Christian Bjorklund and Poddington Bear. Our logo was designed by Catherine Conley. And of course, thanks to our producer, the Superman, Kevin McDonald. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And find us by searching for Growing Forward wherever you normally find your podcasts. If you already have subscribed, don't forget to tell a friend about us. Also, please leave us a review to let us know how we're doing and drop us a line if you'd like at growingforward at nmpbs.org.